You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Our Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. Today, I'm, I'm very excited to interview the author, uh, Mark Weston, who wrote The Savior Fish, Life and Death on Africa's Greatest Lake. First, I just want to say welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Uh, Mark's in the UK, and I'm in New Zealand, so we're at the opposite ends of the earth. But with the, uh, the, the wonderful technology we have today, it's so amazing. I can actually see him. We're on video. And we're going to talk about his book, but also his experiences in Lake Victoria in Africa. It was just, it was an amazing read. It just really pulled me in. And it's a part of the world uh, that that Mark really uh, opens a door and you can really see inside it. So, so we're going to get to that today. But Mark, first, can you just kind of give our listeners your background? Like, you know, where'd you grow up and, and where did this connection to nature come from? In your life, yeah, um, I grew up in Kent in the southeast of England. Um, wasn't any more interested in nature than anybody else as a kid. Really, um, I got into bird watching in my thirties. Uh, that was really my first door into it. And then when I got to East Africa, um, which was because of other work uh, reasons, um, I went to places like the Serengeti and a few wildlife uh, reserves there, and thought it was really amazing. But really. My intense interest happened when I arrived on Ukerewe Island in Lake Victoria um, and lived there for two years and just came across um, this fishing industry and the fishing basically crisis that's happened there and became interested in, in that way more from a sort of conservation uh, perspective than a particular love of uh, the fish, although I liked eating some of the fish and in other African lakes, uh, which don't have so many crocodiles and hippos, I've snorkeled among some of the similar fish. So they're beautiful fish. But yeah, so that, that's really it. There's no sort of deep background in nature. It's sort of come, come about because of being ending up in this place where nature was so important to, to human lives. Right. But your background's more uh, writing, right? Like uh, mm -hmm. in, in reporting and, and working with, I mean, do you, you work with some nonprofits? Or is, yeah, I'm a yeah. consultant and writer on international development. So I work with universities, nonprofits, the UN, people like that, writing about things like public health, education, demography, justice, things like that. And yeah, it's a, it's a little bit on the environment. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's fascinating. It's, it's fascinating. So 
to set this kind of all up because I, I was curious because I was looking for it in the book and then and then I finally got it. But how did you find yourself in Lake Victoria of all places on Earth? Well, I traveled in West Africa about 10 years ago for six months um, to write my first book, The Ringtone and the Drum, and was trying to find a way to get back there, um, having come back to Europe. And my wife um, works for the British Council and teaching English. And she saw this job in Tanzania, uh, teaching, uh, doing teacher training. And one, um, it was a, it was a project with like thirty five uh, teacher trainers involved, and they were sent to different teacher training colleges around the country, and they're all dotted around re- obscure remote regions in Tanzania. And we were sent to the one on Okerewa Island, which is probably the rem- remotest of all of them. So she was posted there for two years, and because I'm a freelance consultant, I just need an electricity con- uh, connection and an internet connection. Thought, well, this is a great opportunity to explore rural um, Africa and also East Africa, which I didn't have any experience of until then. So we ended up there for two years um, as the only foreigners living on this island in Lake Victoria. Yeah, it was fascinating uh, how how you tell that story. And it, it, did you have when you got, I guess when you when you left uh, Europe, did you have an intention of writing a book, or was it when you were there, you just the experiences, and you're like, wow, I've really got to write this down. No, I thought I would probably write articles, um, travel articles and things like that, um, but not a book. It was only when I got there and found this massive uh, ecological story uh, mm. that I thought it's probably worth a book rather than an article. It's important enough to write a book about rather than just a couple of articles. Yeah, no, it, it is. And, I, and it, it, it captures, I, I, as we get into it, I think it really captures um, kind of a spotlight on what's going on a, a, around Earth, especially like I... I I could empathize with the people there because I, I feel it here in New Zealand. So, so we'll talk about that because really quick, because the, the book title is The Savior Fish. And, and I'm, I want to talk about their impacts a little bit later in the interview. But just to set this up for everybody, who is The Savior Fish? The Savior Fish um, is the, the Nile perch, Lates niloticus, um, which is a large predator. It can grow to, the, grow to about six feet in length, swims very fast, fleshy. Um, and was venerated actually in ancient Egypt, further down the Nile. So Lake Victoria is the main source of the Nile, um, but Nile perch didn't appear in Lake Victoria until the 1950s, for reasons we'll discuss um, yes. later. Um, <laughs> but it was venerated down in uh, ancient Egypt, way down the lake, so it was existed in the river. And there's actually a cemetery um, near Esna, near the town of Esna in Egypt, where which is full of buried Nile perch, which have been sort of mummified, and they're still there. Oh yeah. It's crazy. Some of the stuff they're digging up. I, I just, uh, the, the stuff going on in Africa or in yeah. Egypt, it's amazing. That's, that's another discussion for another day. Okay. So we have the Nile perch. This is a, an introduced species. So we'll, we'll get to their impacts because I wouldn't call it a savior fish for, well, maybe for a little while for the people there. Uh, but as the story unfolds, we'll talk about that. But to set it up, Lake Victoria, can we talk about the history there? Because you you do paint this beautiful but difficult picture today of uh, the peoples there. But before the Europeans arrived there, what was kind of Lake Victoria like that that region? Or did you kind of get into that history? Because really, the post European times, you've seen the impacts. But before Europeans came and, and started exploiting the area, what was it like there? Well, obviously, it's, an, it's a very ancient lake. It's in the Rift Valley. Um, it's the second largest lake in the world by surface area. 
but it's actually very shallow. Um, and if, if you measure it by the volume of water, it's not even Africa's largest lake. At its deepest point, it's 80 metres um, deep. The average is about half that. Whereas, for example, Lake Tanganyika nearby has parts that are 1,500 metres um, deep. And it's in the tropics, so sometimes it's completely dried up during during history. And the last time that happened was 15,000 years ago after a huge and prolonged drought that affected all of Africa and quite a lot of Asia. Um, after being dry for 3,000 years, it slowly refilled. And because it's in the tropics, there was rapid procreation of species. So from hardly any species 15,000 years ago, um, by the early 20th century, it became one of the most species diverse bodies of freshwater on Earth. And before the Europeans arrived um, in sort of late 1800s, um, farming was the main activity around the lake, not fishing. Fishing was only done a couple of months a year when there was no cultivation to be done. And people fish from the beaches or from dugout canoes using a variety of, sort of old techniques like hooks carved out of wood, spears, papyrus basket traps, things like that. And people um, there today said their ancestors used to be able to sort of stand on the beach and uh, catch the fish with their bare hands. There were so many fish there. And then the Europeans arrived in the late 1800s. All right. And then, and then what? Because everywhere we go on Earth, where you know, I, I I just had another interview talking about the American West, and and then I, I did interview a, uh, the history of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast down here. The Europeans come, and my I'm, my ancestry is European, so you know I, I I can highlight this a little bit. It's like a big boot that just stomps out a lot of life, right? Like what what happened in that part of the world? Yeah, I mean, that happened in the long run in East Africa. So when the Europeans, the Germans and the British uh, colonised East Africa in the late 1800s, um, they needed to um, balance the colonial books to ensure that there was as much money coming out as they were putting into it. Um, so they wanted to transform fishing from what had been a subsistence activity into a, a commercial enterprise. So in, um, I think, about 1905, the British imported flax gillnets to the lake, which are huge um, durable nets that hang in the water and they entangle anything that swims into them. So much more efficient than the pre than the local uh, techniques had been. Um, sail propelled boats were, were brought to the lake. Railways connected the lake to uh, the big coastal cities and to uh, Nairobi. And for the first time, fishermen were organised into fleets. So the British basically modernised the fishing industry. And lots of farmers became fishermen. Cash was available. People came from other parts of Africa. Um, and there was a bit of a fishing boom. But these new techniques kind of took their toll on fish stocks quite quickly. Within a decade or two, catch rates um, began to decline. People started using nets with smaller holes, smaller mesh sizes. Um, so they declined even more. Um, and some species, uh, some of the lake's native species went extinct. Like um, There's one called the Ingege tilapia, which was very popular. That went um, extinct. And things like catfish and other large fish um, also um, went into steep decline. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it's, uh, it, it, it's a tough story to tell, but it, it, it definitely sheds light on where we are uh, conservation-wise and the, uh, the biomes from around the planet. You know, we're still feeling a lot of uh, the ripples in time from hundreds of years ago, you know, in, in the Americas, uh, here in Asia or in the Southern Pacific. So, yeah, it, it, it's 
it, it's engrossing. When I got to that point in the book, I was like, wow, you know, it, 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 I just had so much, uh, I could relate to that so much after seeing uh, around here where I live. But kind of talk about the area for you, because I, I, I kind of build up to tell the story of the Nile Perch and everything. But what was it like living there for you? You know, going from Europe, you've been in Africa before, but, you know, you do write it beautifully, but just if you can kind of give a brief synopsis, you know, uh, I guess you, the, the two only white people there showing up that they haven't seen in a long time. Right. And, and, and so how did they treat you? Uh, how did you feel uh, living in yeah. that part of Africa? Yeah, quite daunted at first um, because we were going to be the only foreigners living there. We didn't really speak the language. Swahili was the local language. I started studying it as soon as I found we were going to be there. And hardly anyone on the island speaks English. So that was a bit of a barrier and at first yeah we were a big novelty for people because I don't think any white people had lived on the island for decades before us um and you you only get the very occasional tourist who sort of strays there from the mainland and quickly leaves because it's pretty pretty remote um but it didn't take didn't take too long we we rented a small um house sort of one one story house and it didn't take too long um for our neighbors to kind of accept us um particularly as our Swahili improved and crash course self-teaching Swahili and their kids there's loads of kids around our house and they kind of were very excited to have us two there um foreigners um white people with like laptops um and elect you know we had a bit of electricity in our house occasionally and they didn't it was a very poor um community and the kids you know, we quickly befriended the kids and through them their parents and now um a few years later we've still got lots of friends there and we still go back as often as we can um and yeah, we keep in touch. I call a couple of them every every month from Europe, and yeah, it's, it's a fantastic experience in the end, um, which we you know very privileged to have, and completely different to any experience we'd ever had before. Before when we travelled in Africa, it had mostly been in urban areas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and moving around quite fast. So living in one place for two years meant we could develop long term relationships and get past that barrier of us being foreign, really, and become part of the of the community really. Right. Yeah, it is. It, I, I just know just moving here, you know, it, it when you leave uh, your childhood home and, and your, your culture and go and, and live in another culture, it really is life changing. And, you know, I, I always like to tell people, go travel if you can go live overseas mm-hmm. if you can um, yeah, I agree. see. Yeah. It just, it opens up your mind to, to a mm-hmm. whole different worldview. So I, I'd like to see to ask about like kind of the wildlife in the area that that's still remaining. I mean, you know, we're not talking about like the big five elephants, even if they, I don't know if they are there. But um, you know, what are some of the the other species? You, you mentioned bird watching, and I and I and I can definitely relate to you because that's something I've picked up in the last couple of years. Is, is I really enjoy going out and it's like playing Pokemon Go. You know, looking for birds, yeah. and I have I use the eBird app, and I always log what I see. Um, but what were some of the other animals there that, that you, you routinely saw? Yeah, I mean, I took my, took my binoculars, obviously, because expecting the bird life to be impressive. And it was. Um, mm-hmm. There's a big, big variety of species. There's hundreds of different species around Lake Victoria, but it's not, they're not great. They're not huge in number. Um, I thought there'd be, you know, clouds of birds, but it was nothing like that. It was the island that we live, lived on, Okereo, has been deforested um, quite dramatically in recent decades. So there's less, there's fewer habitats for the, for the birds. Um, but there were things like fish eagles, weavers, kingfishers, fish eagles you only occasionally saw, but it's spectacular when you do see them. Um, other animals, um, there used to be elephants on Ukerewe, 
and uh, uh, but they got hunted um, to extinction. Um, they used to be chimpanzees, um, but again, they got hunted to extinction. Although when I was there in March, there were rumours. I heard a couple of rumours that there were still some chimps on the island, but I only yeah. heard that on our on our last day or a penultimate day there so couldn't go and check it out so next time we're definitely going to go and check it out yeah um and it's it's the lake is like an hour away from the serengeti so in the serengeti there's loads of big big five and big big game and in the lake itself there are hippos and crocodiles but crocodiles are declining rapidly because they get killed first of all they got killed by the brits when they were there Um, and now they get killed by locals because they're a big danger to people who use the lake to wash in and drink from and uh, and swim in and stuff. So people use the lake a lot, and crocodile attacks are quite common. Common, yeah, 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 yeah. They are one, of, and the hippos too. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Hip, hippos are really dangerous. Um, apparently, yeah. they kill more animals than any other. Kill more people than any other animal in Africa, apart from uh, yeah. mosquitoes. But we didn't see yeah. many. We saw a couple of hippos from the yeah. island. We heard of one occasion where a hippo had yeah. sort of eaten off someone's face without killing. Oh, them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're really aggressive. So you've got to be careful. <laughs> Um, when you swim in the lake, you got to, you don't want to stay in for very long. Yeah, I think I don't risks. know. It's like stay on land or go swimming. I don't know what to do in Africa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think there well, are safer lakes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, one thing I found interesting was your story about bats and kind of the myths there. Can you just talk about how the locals feel about the bats there? Yeah, um, they. Uh, we had a woman who uh, became who became a cleaner for for us in our in our house. You don't have to pay very much for a cleaner there, and it gives someone a job. So we overcame our sort of guilt and get, and gave her this job as a cleaner. And she told us that um, when she'd been working as a cleaner in a church, um, she'd managed to clean the whole church um, when the church opened, but couldn't get rid of hundreds of bats that were hanging from the ceiling. And the only only way um, to get rid of them was they, she concluded was to pray over them. Um, she and the pastor prayed and, and they all died, all these bats. And the pastor told her that the, the bats were linked in some way to sorcery. So there's a lot of witchcraft on Ukadeo where everybody believes in witchcraft. And bats are, are seen as an emissary from witches um, who cast a spell on you and they send the bats to kind of um, implement the spell. And we had a bat once in our house, a very small one, uh, um, one night. And we told our name, our, our cleaner about it. Um, and she she was really worried for us and said we needed to pray to protect ourselves and she left a bible in our house until the till the threat had passed so people are quite scared of bats um not just on Ukerewe, but in quite a lot of uh, east africa and in some i've i've heard that in some parts they they persecute them you know, to come throw stones at them and, and slingshots and things to to kill them because they're so worried about them but we saw loads of bats and an amazing amount of bats at night around the island fruit bats and smaller bats Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you some of the species that you might have saw, like, like fruit bats. Yeah. And some that's the, the only one I know ones. about, but yeah, some yeah. Much smaller ones. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's uh, it's unfortunate. And we were going to speak to a, a bat researcher there, and we still may try to get, get a hold of her yeah. in, in West Africa. And right. um, I forgot which bat she was looking at. But yeah, I know that they're such an important species and they just have such a bad rap uh, yeah. about them, you know, all around the earth, but mm. they're just so critical to uh, the environments they live in. Yeah. Snakes all right. as well. Get, oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Any snakes? Yeah. You yes. hardly ever saw an, a live snake, but you saw loads of dead yeah. ones that have been killed. Yeah. Whenever they see a snake, they'll kill it. Oh um, no. Uh, yeah. So in the road, you'd always, you don't very often see dead, small, usually dead snakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another species. Yep, yeah. and they're so yeah, critical need, too. Yeah, they both need a good PR map. 
I know. <laughs> we're trying. We're trying right. to recover them. But yeah, like we did the Black Mamba, and, uh, you know, one of Africa's deadliest, and, and they're mm. so shy. They just they don't want to mess with mm. you. They just want to be yeah. left alone. Anyways, yeah. But let's go back to the lake. So uh, here we are. This uh, okay. I, I guess to kind of set it up is and 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 I forgot the scientists when I wrote this uh, question down. Darwin's Dream Pond. So Lake Victoria is known as Darwin's Dream Pond. What did they mean by that? Yeah, this was a Dutch scientist called T. Goldschmidt, that's and he was talking. He was he was talking about the um, biodiversity um, among the fish, but also about the amazing speed at which the uh, lake's most common fish, um, the cichlids, um, evolved. Um, so the Darwin idea was the you know the speed of evolution. So um, when the lake began to fill up. Uh, 12,000 years ago, it's thought that there were four or five cichlid species which filtered in from nearby lakes. Um, cichlids are small, bony fish um, that evolve very quickly to adapt to new environments. They can change colour, size, shape, um, feeding and sheltering strategies, diet and swimming speeds to adapt to new uh, new realities and, and, and new environments. And it takes most species a very long time to evolve into another species, as you know. Um, Darwin's finches and the Galapagos took uh, two million years to evolve from one species into 12, for example. But the cichlids went from four or five species 12,000 years ago to about 500 at the start of the 20th century, which is a new species every 30 years. And it was this rapid speciation that attracted scientists to study the lake. And uh, they were so amazed by this rapid uh, fluorescence of of biodiversity there. So... When I guess we know when, but to to, to lead up to uh, when did things change? You talked about when the the British showed up and the peoples there would fish occasionally. It wasn't a big thing, but now they're industrializing it. So they they were giving them all these nets and everything, and then they introduced the savior fish, right? So is this when things started to change, or were things already changing, and then they introduced? the Nile perch. No, not really. So the, the, the episode yeah. I was talking about before when um, yeah. the first sort of decline in fish species, mm. that was mostly larger fish, which were caught yeah. by these gill nets. The cichlids really escaped that right, sort right. of cull. Um, and that was in like the 1930s, 1940s that that decline happened. Okay. Um, so they needed a new way to balance the books um, and to make the fish, make the lake commercially viable. Um, so they looked at um, the cichlids, which were basically worthless for eating, um, mm-hmm. are too small and bony mostly. And they thought, how can we turn this into something that's commercially viable? Um, so they then um, introduced the Nile perch, which had been successful in a couple of other African lakes. And they thought that would eat the cichlids and the perch itself would be a an attractive fish from local and regional markets. It turned out to be an attractive fish for international markets as well. Mm-hmm. So if they introduce mm-hmm. that to the lake and it eats the cichlids, you turn all these cichlids into cash, basically right. help, the, help the colony make some make some export revenues. Yeah. I did. And I guess I'll, I'll let people read the book to, <laughs> unless you want to tell the story about leading up to the Nile perch being dumped in there. I was like, wow, wow, wow. If I could only been there. Um, so what happened? They, they introduced the Nile perch. Yeah. So they ignored now- the advice of, well, they, they didn't ignore it. They listened to the advice of scientists yeah. and decided, uh, who warned against introducing an alien species yeah. into a complex and fragile um, tropical environment. Um, you know, their kind of economic concerns outweighed their ecological concerns. Mm-hmm. 
And in the 1950s, they introduced a, um, a few juvenile Nile perch into the lake. Um, but they didn't really start appearing in nets until uh, after the British had left, um, after Tanzania and Kenya and Uganda, which are the yeah. three lakeshore countries, got their independence. Which, and so it started appearing nets in about the 1970s. Um, and then it started appearing in ever greater numbers. Um, and a bit of a fishing boom took off in the sort of 1980s, 1990s. Lots, more, Many more fishermen came to the lake. Um, it created a lot of jobs around the lake um, because it, it became a popular fish in like Asia, uh, Israel, um, Europe. Um, so there was, it was bringing in a lot of cash to the lake region, which had previously been very poor. So lots of people gave up farming and took up fishing. People came from all sorts of other African countries to fish there. Um, factories were built around the lake to process the fish with help from donors like the World Bank. Um, and it became a massive industry, created, I think, a quarter of a million jobs at, at its peak. Um, schools were built, which are still there. So it has had some lasting positive effect. And this is why local people called it the saviour fish, because with the decline of fish in the sort of 40s and 50s, um, the lake, the region had gone back to being really poor, especially as a lot of them had given up, a lot of people had given up farming to fish. Um, so there was a kind of long sort of dearth of economic activity for 20 years. So when it came along producing all these jobs, not just for fishermen, but for people who kind of service the fishermen in some way, like mending nets, selling mm-hmm. stuff to the fishermen, you know, opening bars, um, restaurant uh, cafes and things like that, um, created all these jobs. So therefore they called it the saviour fish. Right. It, it, it does that econo- economic impact to a community. So, and I think that's what gets frustrating sometimes with conservation because you know, something I've learned doing this podcast the last few years, it's like, we can't go into a region and say, you can't do this because we need to save this species. And these people are fighting to stay alive. And I, and, and I think it was the DNC just this week or last week, and they're talking about all these oil contracts that they're, they're giving this exploitation of the, of the rainforest, cutting down the rainforest. And they they said, we're not responsible for saving the planet, you know? Look at what Europe's doing. Look at what the Americas is doing. So I, I get it. I get it you know, for the people there. But what does it look like today? Because that didn't last, right? No, it didn't last. Um, in the by about the nineteen nineties, uh, Nile perch was being overfished because lots of new technologies yeah. had come to the lake, much more efficient technologies than had ever been seen on it before. Trawlers, things like that. Um, mm. So, and other fish were also getting um, overfished as well because the net sizes were getting smaller and smaller. The whole the mesh sizes were getting smaller and smaller. Um, and the, so the Nile perch were hunting the cichlids or eating the cichlids and also competing with other cichlids for food. So 200 species of about 200 of the 500 species of cichlids went extinct between the 1970s and uh, mid 1990s. And their share of the fish biomass in the lake declined from I think 80% down to about 1% um, in the, in this period. So cichlids, basically, a lot of them disappeared from the lake. Um, so you know, some of the Nile perch's food also disappeared from the lake, but the Nile perch were also being heavily overfished. Um, so their numbers uh, went right down. Um, there was also pollution in the lake. So because all these humans had come to the lake, they had to cut down uh, trees to build houses, to build boats, to smoke the Nile perch. Um, so there was deforestation and to clear the land for farmland because you have these these humans had to be fed with stuff other than just fish. Um, so 
that made it easier for things like pesticides, fertilizers, uh, manure, human sewage to run off the land into the lake. So the lake became heavily polluted. There were like there's, there's these if you fly over the lake today, there's these massive algal clouds of green or blue clouds in the lake, like huge. Um, um, and the lake is vast, and the lake's the size of Ireland. But these algal blooms cover huge um, areas of it, and these right. algae are feed, feeding on these excess of nutrients in the lake. And as they um, decay, they get eaten. Uh, they get what get decomposed by microbes and the microbes use oxygen while they're um, decomposing the algae and um, bits of the lake, their whole parts of the lake become deoxygenated. So more mm -hmm. fish die and you get these fish die offs now where you have like loads of fish floating on the surface of the yeah. lake dead without any, and the locals don't know why that is, but it's probably because of deoxygenation of the, le of the, of the depths of the lake. So it's a kind of perfect storm of um, overfishing predation by this um, alien species and then mm -hmm. uh, deforestation and pollution that together has come has come together to kind of decimate the the lakes fishing industry so now that now it's the boom has absolutely turned to uh, bust in the last bust, sort of yeah. 15 15 20 years oh, yeah no i uh, we've we've touched upon some of the freshwater fish uh, crisis going around the planet because there is a lot of you know we just got out of plastic free july and there's a lot of focus on the ocean and the fish in the ocean uh, documentaries on that but in our backyards you know we're seeing mass pollution uh, mm. in, in many countries you know where i live where you live uh, where many of our listeners live and it's killing off a lot of uh, native wildlife and fish i mean 200 species that's i know we're we're in the sixth mass extinction and that's what we're coining this, this mass die off. I mean that, I guess it, it, I know it takes a long time to declare a species extinct. So when those fish start coming in, like bam, extinct, 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 cause we have mm -hmm. not seen them for 20 years. Wow. Wow. That's really gonna, uh, that's really awful. Yeah. One so, scientist, one scientist yeah. called it the greatest um, mass extinction of vertebrates in recorded history, apparently. Yeah, no, that's I haven't heard, I haven't come across that. I read that and I was like, wow, you know, it it's that that loss in such a concentrated area, and the up and down effects, up and down the the food web and tree and and everything, mm -hmm. all the species that depend on it. So, so I know one thing you you mentioned the fish are are much smaller now, and now the competition for getting any now perch is is intense, isn't it? Yeah, so local people will tell you that, uh, you know, 20 years ago, they'd easily make the equivalent of, say, 40 US dollars in a night. A boat, a, a crew of fishermen would make that. Now it's difficult for them to make $5 in a night, for example. The average weight of a caught Nile perch has, has come down from 50 kilos at its peak to less than 10 kilos today because none of the big ones not many of the big ones are left. And the stocks of perch in the lake, and the data is not very reliable because African um, data is generally not very reliable, but mm -hmm. it seems like stocks of Nile perch in the lake are down by about three quarters since since their peak. Um, so yeah, you don't really see the big perch anymore. And when you go to a market like in Wanza, there's a big fish market, which is the city on the lake shore um, from which fish used to be exported abroad. Um, a lot of the fish, a lot of the Nile perch you see there are be below the legal minimum catch size because. Governments around the lake imposed a minimum catch size to try and stem the decline. Um, and they, 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 they imposed it once and then the fish processing factories put pressure on them to make that um, not such a severe measure. 
Um, but even even now, even you know, even when they they've made the minimum catch size smaller, most of the fish you see in the market are smaller than the minimum. Smaller. Lots, lots of illegal fishing going on. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and so for the cichlids that are remaining, has that been kind of a a savior story for them? I mean, with with less Nile perch, are they able to rebound a little bit? There are some signs that some species are rebounding, yeah, partly by hybridizing with other species because the lake's so polluted. Right. Um, the female of the species can't see the male so much, and so they often uh, mate with males of other species, uh, and sometimes mm-hmm. this results in offspring not always of course um, and sometimes this results in offspring a new kind of um hybridized species are, are, are appearing in the lake um mm-hmm. so there's less biodiversity among them um but some of the some of the species are now recovering because of um the absence of nile perch but there's still the pollution problem and there's yeah. still the overfishing problem yeah yeah and, fish. i mean is there talks of bringing nile perch back in in greater numbers or <laughs> no no okay good not, not reintroducing it no yeah. Okay. Now, are there any conservation projects ongoing in Lake Victoria? I mean, that that's tough because you have three different countries, Tanzania, Kenya, and Uganda, mm. you know, uh, to try to rehabilitate or protect or, you know, reduce pollution. Is any of that going on there? Not that you see on Ukerewe yeah. Island or the, or yeah. the shore around there. And when yeah. I've been in on the lakeshore in, in Kenya and Uganda, I've never seen a lot. I mean, governments try to clamp down on illegal fishing. They ban trawlers and things like that. Um, and there's some encouragement for fish farming instead of fishing in the lake. Particularly, there's more of that in Kenya than in Tanzania um, to try and get fishers off the lake and also to make, make some money from the fish. Um, but, yeah, not as you say, it's a bit difficult to coordinate between three governments because it's you know the, the waters are shared between the three governments. So you need all of them to collaborate to have new initiatives but the people are so poor that it's very difficult for them to be persuaded to do other stuff because and also they're not very well educated so they haven't got other skills so you know what do you tell a fisherman who's got six kids um who if you if he doesn't feed them properly will get sick and the healthcare facilities are so terrible so there's a very good chance of them dying you you tell him stop fishing okay what else are you going to do what else am i going to do what else are you going to give me and you always hear that that kind of response when you ask when you when you tell people about um or when you ask people about government measures to to prevent the decline of the perch. Yeah, no, no. And, and that's, you know, you hear that everywhere. And it's one of the things I've learned is 
it's definitely conservation is local and, you know, hopefully there's people in the area that go, okay, we want to, to help uh, Lake Victoria. Cause yeah, it's tough. It, it's just tough. And, and do you know how they've, they've weathered COVID in the last couple of years in that region? Have they been doing okay? Well, Tanzania's government uh, president at the time was basically a COVID denier. And uh, he basically didn't allow any data to be published about COVID. So couldn't hear after about the 300th death they stopped producing any data and he was anti-vaccine and everything he actually ended up dying of covid um in march 2021 i think um on the island there have been anecdotally from friends there there have been outbreaks and you know quite quite a few um, older people have died but it's a very young population so that has already weathered a lot of diseases childhood diseases so there's a chance that they're more they're, they're robust again, more robust against COVID than we in say Europe would be with our older population that hasn't weathered all these diseases. As I say, the data is really terrible, so especially in Tanzania, so we can't really know. Yeah, what's the impacts? Yeah, I just know there's there's also you know there's been uh, some impacts on a lot of conservation work there in Africa, and you know local people with tourism shut down turning to, to poaching and other mm. ways just to survive i mean just to like you said feed their six kids and yeah and how how do i tell them no don't don't go get some nile perch to feed your kids i, I can't yeah. say that yeah you know even though it's the detriment to the lake it's well yeah <laughs> anyways yeah. there has been an economic effect of covid a definite economic effect so tourism to tanzania has completely stopped for a while um and yeah the, the all the economies in in the region were affected economically by it um but the, Tanzania never locked down really, so economic activity yeah. in within the country continued. Just there wasn't much right. as much of it coming from outside. Yeah, the international market coming yeah. in, uh, tourism, mm -hmm. tourism. So the local population, uh, what's next for them, really? I mean, because it just seemed like there's a cycle. Right? Is there a cycle of exploitation? The Europeans came in, a lot of fishing, a lot of jobs. Wow, that went away for twenty years. Now perch boomed. There was a lot of boom for 20 years. Now we're in one of those low points. Is there something in the future for them on the horizon that might turn some of this around or are they just kind of going to struggle for a while? Well, if you speak to fishermen on Ukerewe, they'll all, nearly always say that they don't want their kids to become fishermen um, because they don't see any future in, in the industry because they've seen their catch rates decline um, as catch rates per fisherman have declined quite a lot over this period. Um, they want to, they want them, they all want their kids to get educated primarily so they can get off the island, go to the big cities and try and get jobs there or get jobs abroad, things like that. So at the moment, around the lake, because of you know deforestation's made farming less attractive as well, um, and um, as has overpopulation. So the, the plots of land are all really small now because they get handed down from generation to generation. So you only get small plots of land, so you can't make any money out of it. You can only do subsistence farming on it and subsistence farming is no longer very attractive to people in this modern world they see it as backward thing to do and there's no fishing so yeah i mean it's difficult to see a future at the moment unless there is there are conservation measure, measures to replenish the lake or to allow the stocks to recover but that requires big short-term sacrifice and that short-term sacrifice can mean disaster for individual families so and people haven't really consulted the governments haven't really consulted local people on the ground what they think should happen you know because before the europeans came there was a very sustainable fishery on lake victoria completely sustainable a couple of months a year in certain areas um just just fishing from the beach or very very close to the shore um so they know how to 
they've got this historic knowledge of how to fish the lake sustainably, um, but nobody's really consulted them. It's been measures in, imposed from above, like bans and fines and confiscating nets and things. Um, and people don't really trust the government anyway, so that even, even if you know they're not really willing to fo- follow these measures, even if they could, um, rather than being local people being consulted themselves and engaged in the process of you know, restoring the lake. It's it's tough. It's oh, it's a t- it's so tough. It's so tough. This is going on all around the world. I mean, yeah. it's going on uh, in many parts of the world that have been exploited and and continue to be exploited. Oh, uh, so would you suggest people to come visit Lake Victoria? I just went when, when I you sent me the book and. I, I started reading. It. I was like, "Oh, Lake Victoria has this mythos, this this mystique about it." W- would it be something like you would say, "Hey, if you if you want to really get a good taste of what's going on in Africa, go to Lake Victoria." I mean, would you feel safe there? Is there like some ecotourism going on there, or any sort of tourism operations there that people could go and and see this part of the world and you know help stimulate some some econ- you know stimulate the the local economy. Yeah, absolutely. The lake's absolutely beautiful. The climate's fantastic. The people are lovely. Um, the food's great because there is still some fish and the fish is delicious. Um, there are ecotourism places in some parts, not on Okerewe itself, but there are hotels, guest, guest houses on Okerewe, well, not hotels, guest houses, um, which are okay on the island. It's kind of pretty rugged um, traveling, um, but it's an incredible experience going there and, you know, so it's beautiful and, and and there are different bits of the lake which are different have different scenery so there's islands off the kenyan coast which are really spectacular and almost mountainous look at is sort of low rolling hills and then around the shore you know, there's great beaches um again you've got the risk of getting in the water because of uh, crocodiles, <laughs> crocodiles and hippos yes. so they're, they're attractive they're attractive beaches so if you can find them you can sit on them um yeah, i've yeah. swum i've swum a couple of times but i didn't stay in for very long um, yeah, no. And my, my wife never swam. She was too worried. And then she, she no. watched me swimming with horror, expecting me to be dragged <laughs> underneath any, any minute. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it, tourism would hugely help. And there are these amazing wildlife parks near the Lake Serengeti. You could combine a visit to the Serengeti very easily with a visit to Lake Victoria, which is just down the road. And um, Mwanza, the, the coastal uh, city, the big coastal city in the Tanzanian side is a beautiful city. Um, with a really strong like, Indian community, so you get great Indian food there. Um, Kisumu is is the similar is similar in uh, Kenya, another pretty attractive, chilled out city. Um, and the, the wildlife, the bird life is great. You know, beautiful, beautiful, not abundant, but it's beautiful, and it's quite good if you're one of those bird watchers who likes seeing difficult to see species because you don't see many of them. You can tick off quite a lot. Um, and then Kampala is the main city on the, and Entebbe, actually Entebbe is the main city on the Ugandan side, which is also beautiful and is quite well set up for tourism, better than the, the Tanzanian side, actually. So, yeah, that would be oh. one way of helping the lake by going there and visiting it. Well, that's about bucket list because I, I definitely like Nagorgo craters where I, I'm dying mm. to go in, in Tanzania. And so, yeah, that's down the uh, road. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say just down the road so I can I can get up to Lake Victoria and, and see what you wrote about. I mean, I really felt like I was there reading your book. I was just right. it was really engrossing, really well written. I just want to ask you are there other regions that you're aware of in Africa that that are are, are struggling that maybe because you really shed light on I think an an, an extinction crisis that 
I didn't hear in four years of doing this podcast and looking for stories to tell, looking for species to tell. I really didn't under, understand that Lake Victoria was was that desperate. Are there some other places in Africa that that maybe is not quite as well known that something like this is going on? They're still feeling the effects of you know colonization and, and the European impact or uh, other impacts that are that are really uh, driving the the extinction that we're seeing. Um, not that spring immediately to mind. I think Lake Chad's another one, um, which is basically drying up. So there are a lot of problems around there, you know, for fishermen, because it really is shrinking very rapidly because of climate change in that case. Um, Lake Victoria is not actually shrinking. It's actually, actually at the level of Lake Victoria had been declining for years, but in the last couple of years, there's been excessive rainfall and the level's gone, gone right up. Um, yeah, so Lake Chad, I mean, the big game's disappearing all over the, all over the continent, and that brings in brings in a lot of export, uh, a lot of foreign exchange, um, and, and is going to do so less as the elephants disappear. I mean, things like elephants have been declining hugely in Tanzania and other places it's, uh, because of hunting and you know, the illegal wildlife trade. Um, and then, as you say, DRC is about to auction off vast swathes of rainforest to um, oil companies, um, which is a bit of a worry. But you can kind of understand their argument saying, you know, you're stopping us from... Um, drilling for oil, but you've been drilling for oil for as, as Europeans and North Americans for you know hundred years. Um, and why why should we not do it? We've got people we need to feed. The trouble is they're saying that the government, but the government won't use that revenue to help feed its people. It'll use the its people, revenue right. to feed itself. Um, the, right. the members of the government and its cronies, and it'll end up in banks in London and Switzerland. So it's a, uh, it's a disingenuous it's- argument. <laughs> It's so frustrating. It is so frustrating. These stories can be so frustrating. I mean, I look to Brazil and the deforestation with you know the government there and and we're going to lose the Amazon here pretty quick and I, f- I feel helpless, but telling these stories I think is important and and to any of our listeners, we always try to put positive spin on a lot of this because we don't want people to get, you know, too down in the dumps and be like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. All it does to me is it just puts a fire in my belly and say, okay, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, did I do anything today to, to help these animals and these government, you know, these environments and, and even the locals, you know, did, did, did I do anything to, to help them? So it can be frustrating, Mark. Mm-hmm. I don't, <laughs> uh, a couple it's more not, questions. It's not, impos- it's, it's not an impossible situation though. I spoke to a conservationist, conservationist on Lake Malawi the other day and by involving um, local there there had been a much lesser of a problem because there wasn't Nile perch there but uh, local fish had been declining because of overfishing but by um, involving local people in managing the lake and in you know sanctioning those who broke laws and stuff rather than the government doing this they managed in bits of Lake Malawi to greatly restore the fishing population and the fishing industry it's kind of much smaller scale than Lake Victoria but it is possible to um, rescue these lakes and uh, Lake Victoria is a bit more difficult because it's three countries and it's massive um, but it, you know there are examples even just you know a few hundred miles away in Lake Malawi of fish, fisheries being restored by local well action led by local people no yeah there are there are good stories out there and uh, it just made me think of the Whitley award winners we interviewed last year uh, some of these people are just doing some incredible work and we're going to try to get uh, this year's winners uh, interviewed again uh, out of there the UK and there are people doing some incredible work i mean incredible work 
it's just these governments that just like, oh, they, they, they frustrate me sometimes, especially yeah. being an American and seeing what's, right. what's going on in my home country. Yeah. It, I wanted to ask you about your other books, if you can just kind of enlighten us of what, about what, what they're about. I mean, there was African Beauty and the, the what was it, The Ringtone and the Drum? Yeah, The Ringtone and the Drum. The Ringtone and the Drum was a travel, travel book about West Africa. Um, travel, traveled around for six months, right, meeting people, writing about the history and the politics um, and having, you know, having long chats with local people about life in what's a very poor region. Um, so that was nonfiction. And then African Beauty is a fiction book. It's a sort of satire of um, foreign involvement, uh, Western involvement in Africa and aid workers and stuff and all the hijinks they get up to over there in the name of um, doing good and uh, saving the world and all the sort of dark, the dark side of saving the world. So that was a novel. And then The Saviour Fish is a nonfiction book about Lake Victoria. All right. All right. All right. All right. Well, I, I could probably tell. This is probably some life experience there, too, and uh, things that, <laughs> yeah. that you've been able to uh, to see. So is there anything else you're working on or any of the projects that you'd, you'd like to mention? Um, not at the moment. No, I'm kind of thinking about my next move. I'm back in London. Had to, I was living in Sudan before COVID, and we got evacuated from Sudan because right. of COVID yeah. and because the airport yeah. closed. So I'm now kind of thinking about what to do next um yeah like to get back world, to africa as soon as possible um as the world tries to open up right yeah yeah mm. yeah. yeah so yeah. mainly concentrating on other work at the moment yeah, consultancy work oh, good. i think good, about good, good, whether, whether to write another book or not yeah no please do please do it was it was you know to it, it's the the again for our listeners the savior fish life and death on africa's greatest lake it it's just it's an eye-opening experience because um, uh, you know it does have the conservation uh, story in there, but a lot of it too is just the locals, and I, I really felt like I was living there with you. So it, it was just very enjoyable to read that, and it just made me excited to go. Okay, this is definitely one of the my top priority places to get is East Africa uh, in that region of the world. So, so thank you for writing the book and, and sharing with us today. Is there Anywhere where our listeners can follow you on social media or any websites you'd like to promote? I'm on Twitter, uh, Mark Weston 1919. Um, uh, no, that's it really. I'm just, just Twitter. I've tried to reduce my exposure to social media over the years. So yeah, Twitter. <laughs> Smart where, man. Where I, most, I most, mostly write about African issues on there. Um, yeah, that's it really. I know it's, it's tough to get away from it, but yeah, mm. I feel you. I feel you. And then, it, you know, where can people get the book? I, I imagine almost uh, anywhere online. Yeah. yeah. Anywhere online. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Amazon, Waterstones, Barnes and, Barnes and Noble, all the, all the main site book depository. I think I had some friends in New Zealand who bought it on the book depository. Um, yes. Is, yes. Yeah. yeah we're so, here. Yeah. Well, I was lucky because I had the author send it to me. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. I remember I, I was excited when I opened it. I was like, Oh, he did send it. And, <laughs> Um, you know, it just, uh, it was enjoyable to read and, and thank you so much for, for reaching out and, and telling this story. And I know our listeners uh, will enjoy listening to you and learning about this. Um, you know, they're, they're all, you know, conservation enthusiasts and, and really care about the earth. So I, I, I could feel that from your book about the people, how you care about the people and what's going on there. So thank you so much for being on today. Thanks very much for having me.